All righty. The rest of us, let's open up our Bibles and finish reading out of Psalm 107. We began reading in there last week. Psalm 107. Oh, I'm excited about this morning's service. Not sure if it's just because of the topic or four cups of coffee. We'll find out. <laughs> Stephanie, was, she heard it was my fourth cup of coffee, and she goes, oh, dear Lord. So, Psalm 107, we're going to begin reading in verse 23. This is just an amazing, amazing time together. I've really enjoyed this series. I've really particularly enjoyed these last two weeks of what we've been studying, looking at God is good, God is great, God is gracious, and God is glorious. I don't know. I just don't get tired of talking about God. It's just kind of, you never, you can spend your whole life studying him, and you'll just barely begin to even touch the surface of who he is. You spend your whole life serving him and understanding that there's so much more to do. Psalms 107, verse 23. Some went down to the, to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, the waves, the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the great in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste. Because of the evil of its inhabitants, he turns a desert, a, excuse me, a desert. He turns a desert into, what I'm thinking about here. Ooh, time. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and a great fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, and he makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all the wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Father God, I thank you so much for your steadfast love. What a joy it is to speak of it. What a joy it is to live it. What a joy it is to study it. Father God, it is so wonderful to be called your child. How wonderful and how marvelous is your love to us. 
Lord, may these not just be words on the screen or words that roll off our tongues on just a Sunday morning gathering, but Lord, maybe they be something that is echoed in the way we live our lives every single day. That when we see your upright works, when we see your hand at work, even though we may not understand it, even though it, it may cause us to pause, may we not hesitate to say, God, you are great. God, you are good. God, you are glorious. And God, you are gracious. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Got to share a cool story with you before we start into this today. Last week, um, I, by last Friday, I kind of noticed that I was getting a sinus infection and sinus stuff going on. I get it about once or twice a year ever since I was a little kid. Sinus and hay fever and all that good stuff. And so I felt it coming on on Friday. Got a little worse on Saturday. And then by Saturday night, I didn't sleep much before I preached last Sunday. Because, you know, when that nasal stuff starts running down the back of your throat, it doesn't feel very good. Keeps you up awake. Keeps my wife up awake because I'm hacking and coughing and... Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Knew that was coming. Yeah, that's snoring. <clears throat> yeah, the truth. Yes, it's the truth. Yeah. Um, and uh, woke up Sunday morning and I was like, oh, I was kind of scared because I know when that starts happening, my voice can start to go. And did the first sermon, stayed strong, did the second sermon, did stride strong, and then in benediction. And then that first person that came up and talked to me, it went. And I was like, God, you just love to show off. Isn't that cool? I love when God just does stuff like that. Just reminds me how good, great, glorious, and gracious he is to me personally in my life and, and what I'm doing. Last week, this week, we're, or this time right now, we're in a Life on Mission series. And I want to pause again and just reference this photo. I know it makes some people feel uneasy for those who don't like heights, but <laughs> bear with me through it, okay? Because the Life on Mission is uneasy. Life on mission isn't safe. Living for God in everyday life, in every area of our life, is by the world standards not safe. But by the Christian standard, we couldn't be any more safe. And as I looked at this picture, it's a picture that maybe many of us have seen in New York. Sky are being built. I can't help but look at this picture and go, who amongst these people believes God is great, God is glorious, God is gracious, and God is good? Who amongst these men, as they're sitting up there, these Irishmen that are sitting up there and they're talking, who amongst them is living out the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst them? High above the city, working hard, but understand that even the job they have, even the building of that sky riser can be for the glory of God and for the name of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. See, that's what we're driving at in this series. We want you to understand that in all areas, in all aspects of your life, God has put you where he has put you so you can glorify his name. And so you can praise him through circumstances, situations, life issues that come your way. How do we handle those life issues? How do we handle life coming at us? In this last two weeks, we've really wanted to give you a rubric kind of something to gauge yourselves off of. How am I doing handling life? By answering three questions, is God good, is God great, is God glorious, and is God great? I really believe that as we answer these four things in our lives, it will give us the indicator of where we are at in handling 
life situations and living for Christ in everyday life. You see, we can live and be discipled by God in all of life because of who he is. This whole series, and I don't know if you've caught it or not, maybe go back and listen to it. This whole series has been about who God is. We live our lives because of who he is. It's because of our identification in him. Because God is Trinitarian and we are made in the image of God, we're family. And we really want to, as we, as we live as a church, we really want to live that out. We are family. We're servants because Jesus Christ was a servant. And we're sent ones, we're missionaries because the Holy Spirit was sent to empower us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. We also discover, as we look at God and who he is, we discover that God is great and glorious and good and gracious. And because God is great, I don't have to be in control. I want you to think about that for a second. We spent time last week looking at this and God is glorious. But because God is great, I don't have to be in control. And we look got a diagram we'll show you here in a little bit but in every area of my life I don't have to manipulate control and manage my life into the way in which I'm going to be out for my own gain I can allow God to lead me I can allow God to direct me I can not panic and have a heart attack when things don't go the way I think they should I don't have to manage it because God is in control because God is great but every once in a while, we struggle with that control factor, don't we? I think most of us would say we struggle with control. I mean, even, even people who are, you know, pretty passive, even in their passivity, they struggle with control. Because being passive can be a way of controlling things. It's true. Hey, we're sinful people, folks. It shouldn't surprise us when we, we struggle with control and we struggle with other things in our lives. But God is great so we can let go of that control and that manipulation in our lives. We looked at Mark chapter 4 and to Mark chapter 5 last week, and we briefly looked at how awesome Jesus Christ demonstrated that he is great and he is in control. <laughs> the calming of the waves and the disciples were petrified, were terrified. He's asleep in the boat. What a great picture. I, I, have you ever, I, mean, I would love to see an artist. If you all have seen an artist rendering of Jesus asleep in the boat when the storms are, I would love to get a picture of that. If you've got it on, you know, digits or something, I would love to, if you've got one, email it to me. Um, and I would love to, love to have that. Go on the website, click on my name, and you can email me. And, and uh, I would love to see a picture of that. But I think that's just the most wonderful picture because it often depicts what's going on in our lives. The seas are a mess. They're cresting waves that should be crashing over the boat, breaking the boat into little pieces, aren't. And Jesus is in, in the bow of the ship sleeping. We're panicked. But since he's in control, there's no reason to be afraid. God is great. We also saw Jesus take care of the demoniac, take care of those who are demon-possessed. Jesus has complete authority over all spiritual realms. He is the king. We also see Jesus healing the sick, healing those who had died and bringing them back to life. Jesus has all authority and all control, and he is bringing all things to culmination for his glory. He is great. So that I don't have to be in control. You know, we went to a great meeting this week. Um, the leaders of the church had a meeting with the leader, one of the, the pastors down at Grace City Church in Wenatchee. Um, we've started to form a great relationship and friendship with them. I get to get sit down with Adam and Josh every once in a while. We're going to 
try to make it a monthly thing where we spend time just encouraging each other. It's good for pastors to do that, just to pour into each other because it's a unique position. And uh, tell me what, Adam just had a, a tremendous amount of energy at 8 o'clock at night because he's pouring into us and sharing with us the vision of Grace City Church and living life on mission in gospel communities. The coolest thing about that meeting when we left, and I come to find out on Friday, Christy shared this with me this morning, is that when they left out of that meeting, on Friday when the ladies got together and hung out in our gospel community, and they were talking, and they'd gone to it, first I think it was Lizzie that spoke up and said, man, I feel so free because of that meeting to live for God. Then Laura said, I feel so free and then, Christy, I feel so free. Now, how many church meetings you go to and you talk about living in a certain way for Christ, you actually feel free? Probably not enough. But the reason there was such an expression of freedom is because we're realizing how great God is. We're just beginning to, to crest that hill a little bit. And because God is so great, we can live for him unabandoned together as a family. And I don't have to be in control. God is glorious. We looked at this last week. God is glorious so we don't have to fear others. Man, talk about freeing. When we step back and we look at the gloriousness of God and we see all that he is doing and and how he is working in creation and the beauty and the glory of his creation, we see what he's doing in his life. We can't help but, I mean, just take pause and look at your own life. Look back at what God has done and how God has walked through you and given you strength. You can't help, man, God is glorious. And just want to worship him and praise him for who he is. And because he is glorious and he is the one that puts us on mission. We, we the church, right? We're the people of God saved by the power of God for the purpose of God. It's his work. And he's calling us to be on mission for him. And so when he's calling us out to go live for him, I don't have to look around me and go, oh, well, what would so-and-so think? What would so-and-so think? What would so-and-so think? Oh, I better not do that because so-and-so would think that. We don't have to do that. In fact, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear... Christians speak of, well, I'm afraid to minister to that person. And I got it. This is small town Chelan. And, and like I've joked around before, you know, rumors in this town can spread faster than you can travel to Walmart. Okay? And it is what it is. We, we live in a society that's sinful, that's broken, that's fallen. Shouldn't be a shocker. That needs Jesus. That needs Jesus. But when we inhibit our actions and not ministering to people who God places in front of us and God puts upon our hearts to reach because we're afraid of what someone might think, instead of saying God is glorious, we go, is God glorious? Because I've got to protect my own reputation. I've got to defend myself. We should be quick to say God is great and quick to say God is glorious. To not have to worry about controlling our lives but completely surrendering to them and not having to worry about living in fear of others. For God is in control. God loves us, folks. We sing a lot about it. But do we really mean it? Do we really know it? Because of God's love and his gloriousness, we do not have to be in fear. Well, this morning, we're going to look at God is good and God is gracious.
So God is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere. What do we mean by that? Some of you are saying, what? God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere? What, what is that all about? All right. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn over there. Hebrews is in the New Testament towards the back end of the New Testament. Okay? If you hit James, you've gone too far. If you're in 1st, 2nd Timothy, keep going. You're almost there. And then Titus and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24. Actually, we're going to start reading verse 23. So Hebrews chapter 11 is like the, the hero's chapter of faith. If you were going to walk into a giant castle or a king's castle, and you might walk into the great hall. And in the great hall, you might see images or pictures or statues of, of great heroes of that kingdom. People who've defended the king, people who've defended the kingdom, and their, their statues might be up. Well, this, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what we've entered into. We've walked into this great hall of heroes of the faith. These are people that have followed God and demonstrated their faith in God by obedience to him. And Moses is one of those people that is depicted in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, I want you to give you a little backstory here. We're kind of jumping into the middle of the story. The backstory to this is you've got Joseph, who was hated by his brothers, who was sold into slavery. And he was taken into Egypt and had a pretty rough life. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Joseph grew up, was made second in command of all of Egypt. And then scripture gives us a very poignant comment when it makes this statement. And a Pharaoh rose up who did not know the actions of Joseph or what Joseph had done. The Israelites continued to grow. God continues to bless the Israelite nation. And Pharaoh, who did not know know the deeds of Joseph, began to be fearful of the Israelites. And so he places them in bondage and in slavery. Israelites, thinking for sure that that would slow the growth rate and that God surely would not bless them anymore, but they continued to be blessed and continued to grow. And so the, the Pharaoh did what he thought best, and so he executed population control by slaughtering infants, male infants. You would think, imagine a mother or father in this situation. The government has just decreed that they're going to come in and kill your infant. How much fear would you have? How much control would you want to take? The questions of God's greatness, gloriousness, and goodness would be all over the place as you hear children being slaughtered. God gave Moses' parents a great amount of faith. And Moses' parents believed God was great, good, and glorious. And desiring not to control the situation, but give Moses completely over to God's control, they took him and set him in a basket in the Nile River. They trusted in the Almighty God to take care of their son. Love that statement. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Imagine if they'd have taken things in their own hands, tried to control, manipulate, pay off, bribe, whatever the thing may have been to do to try to keep Moses alive. But instead, they turned Moses over to God, and God brought Moses through. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses is drawn out of the water. He's picked up out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. You want to talk about a good place to land. The food would have been incredible. Never lacked anything to eat. The physical education that he would have received, the training up and becoming a warrior, would have been second to none. He would have been able to defend himself. He would have been very well educated. Being raised in Pharaoh's household, being able to read, to write, being able to do mathematics, do an understanding the scientific things that were going on. I mean, you look at what the Egyptians were building and accomplishing. Brilliant people. Moses would have gained that knowledge and that understanding as he would dwelt in Pharaoh's household. But scriptures tell us that Moses through a series of circumstances, chose not to remain part of that household, but to leave it. Now, some of you say, well, he was forced to leave it. Yes. But after he was discovered that he was a child of God, of the Hebrew people, and he responded by murdering, which was not the response that he should have had. And you may think about the Moses in front of the burning bush and the questions he had for God. But you know what? Bottom line is Moses went back. There was a death warrant on his head. But because God is great and God is glorious, because God is good, Moses didn't need to have to fend for himself. Moses didn't need to have to take care of himself. He didn't need to look elsewhere besides God. He didn't have to store up treasures for himself. He didn't have to rely on this education. He didn't have to rely on the status of being in Pharaoh's household. He could leave all of that behind when God called him out and pursue God because God is good. He didn't have to store it up. He didn't have to treasure it for himself. But the world tells us and paints us a different picture, doesn't it? The world tells us that we want to pursue our, the world's goodness, the houses, the possessions, the cars, the financial wealth, financial stability, all of that. We want to pursue all of that. Now, for folks, for some people, God gives you that. And to tell you what, praise be to God. But he gave you that so that you can be a blessing to other people, right? It's not for us to trust in ourselves. We, we don't get more because, so that we can trust in ourselves more. We get more so that we can give back to God more and continue to trust God more. So God is working this out, this beautiful plan of his goodness in our lives. And we can trust him in every single area. God is good. And we don't have to store up treasures for ourselves in this place because God is building us a kingdom and has treasures for us in this kingdom that we can't even begin to fathom. But let me read to you what Tim Chester wrote in regards to the struggles of living out the fact that God is good. It is a call to find in God that which truly satisfies It's believing that we find lasting fulfillment. Listen to this. It's a believing that we believe we find lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, and identity in knowing God and nowhere else. 
One of our problems is that we think of only the moment. In the moment, we think of the pleasures of sin are real and the joy of God is insubstantial or distant. The world loves to focus on the moment, what's going on right here, right now. Don't look tomorrow. Don't look to the next hour. Just look at the moment. You want to be happy in every moment. The world tells you you have the right. You exist, therefore eternal happiness should be yours. You breathe, and so every moment of the life should be a a wonderful and a joyful moment of life. When Scripture tells us that we live not for ourselves, but for God, and joy that is everlasting, we live for that. But the world wants us focused in on the moment. And when we're focused in on the moment, we take care of our own goodness because we're striving after our own happiness. And when we do that, We put a question mark after God is good instead of an exclamation point. I know this morning, some of you may be thinking, Scott, these are kind of canned things. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. God is gracious. And they sound kind of canned and they sound kind of quick fix. I'm telling you what. (laughs) I challenge you. Put these four things up on your mirror in your bathroom. Put them on the mirror in your car or, or somewhere where you could see them constantly. I challenge you, and as you're living your life, and as you're going through circumstances and situations in your life, ask yourself, am I believing that God is good? Have I taken control back from any area of my life and put a question mark instead of an exclamation point after God is good? Am I truly believing that God is glorious? Am I fearing other people right now? Am I fearing relationships? Am I fearing circumstances? Because if we are, then we need to confess that because we've stopped believing that God is glorious. Are we looking to take care of ourselves? Are we watching out for number one? Or are we looking to live as a family of God? Are we looking to other places for our health and well-being other than God? Are we trying to store up treasures for ourselves? Are we creating our own safety net in any area of our lives? And if so, then instead of God is good, we're going, is God good? It may sound corny and it may sound like a canned approach, but I promise you, we will live the rest of our lives. And if we live every day asking these four questions, it will be a great, great way to indicate, have I allowed sin to enter back into my life? And if so, I need to confess, repent, and turn from it. And it's a great way to, for us to be discipleship, discipled in every area of our lives. If God is good, then he is good in every area of our life. Husbands, if God is good, then the woman he gave you to spend their life with is so he can show you his goodness to you. Same way men or women, God gave you your husband so that he can show his goodness to you. In our family, in our relationships, we should not be looking anywhere else for God is good and he gave us exactly what we need is God good with your time I didn't have time to get this done Lord I got all this going on over my head I got this circumstance situation seems like I never get everything you need to get done done it seems like my life is spent in complete turmoil all the time going to bed exhausted every night waking up every morning wondering if I should even crawl out of bed because I'm not going to get it all done is God good with your time Absolutely. 
God is good. God is so good that when you think you need to get a lot done and he brings somebody into your life and they sap your day and take it away from you, God is even more good because he showed you what you needed that day, not what you want you need, thought you needed. God is good in your heart. God is good in that when you face times in your life when you start hurting and, and relationships cause you pain or other things going on in your life, and pain starts to come out, God is good. Let me tell you what, there are a lot of people in the world right now, a lot, who are questioning, is God good in light of Nepal? How can God be good when thousand, at least a thousand, if not more, I believe it's more above account right now, are dead? How can God be good? This is where I got to share a little story with you. It's an old story. You may know it, but it's a good one to be reminded of. Story of Joseph. Pretty much guarantee you nobody in this room has gone through what Joseph went through. And I don't think there's too many better stories in the Bible that talk about how good God is in light of it. You see, Joseph was born the treasured, the treasured son. He was loved more by his father than his brothers. Well, that's great, but as you have grown up in families, how many grew up in a large family? A lot of brothers and sisters. Okay, a few. Okay. You spend more time with dad or with your brothers and sisters? With your brothers and sisters, right? So that wasn't, home life wouldn't be fantastic if you were considered the favorite kid and all, and you were the youngest, by the way, and all the older ones, man, that won't go over well. In fact, it went so ugly and Joseph's household, then guess what? His brother said, we've had enough of this guy. We are not bowing down to him as his dreams have said we're going to do. We're going to pretty much stop this from ever happening. So we're going to throw him in a pit, take his cloak, kill an animal, put animal's blood on the cloak, ship it back to dad, tell dad he's dead. And when some folks going on their way to Egypt are passing by, we're going to sell our brother into slavery. A stranger, an Israelite in the land of Egypt, sold to Potiphar. God blesses him in the midst of his slavery. I guarantee you, none of us in this room, I don't think, have been slaves. But here he was, a slave. God blesses him, gives him wisdom and discernment. He grows in status in Potiphar's house, and he's raised up into a high position in Potiphar's house. And you're thinking, as you're reading the story, good, good for Joseph. You know, that whole slavery thing was bad, and now he's getting position. This is good for him. And then the world comes crumbling down again. Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph is good looking and desires him, goes into him. And he flees. He runs away. She grabs part of his cloak. Potiphar comes home. She gives Potiphar the sad sob story. And Joseph is imprisoned. No slave could ever touch the woman of an Egyptian. I would love to tell you that Joseph remained in prison just a couple days. 
It hung out for a while, but it got to the point so bad where Joseph's crying out to God, have you forgotten me? A couple people joined Joseph in prison, a baker and a cupbearer. So the cupbearer was the guy that would taste the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned before he drank it to Pharaoh. And the baker cooked for the king, cooked for Pharaoh. And so these guys come into prison with him. They have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams, and both of them get out before, before Joseph does. For one, it didn't end so well. He probably would have been better off staying in prison. But for the other, for the cupbearer, it goes well, and he's reappointed to his position, and he forgets about Joseph. That is until Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh's dream, no one can interpret it. It's about a coming famine that will impact the whole land. Nobody can interpret it. The magicians, the sorcerers, all of Pharaoh's lackeys, none of them can interpret it. So the cupbearer goes, hey, I remember this guy. Now, if I'm Joseph and the cupbearer comes back and says, hey, um, Joseph, Pharaoh's got a dream. And, you know, I know it's been a while. <laughs> but uh, I need you to come interpret it. I don't know how my response would have been. But, but Joseph prays and God gives an interpretation of the dream. And Pharaoh t- or Joseph tells Pharaoh. And, and Joseph is appointed as the second in command of all of Egypt. God used that time of suffering for good. How do we know that? Two things. The redemptive plan for Israel. God had a redemptive plan for Israel that involved them being brought into slavery, that involved the Passover, and that involved the the journeying through the wilderness. That was God's plan for Israel. In order for that redemptive plan to be worked out, Joseph had to come to Egypt, had to go through those things. So God's redemptive plan could be perfectly worked out so that when Jesus Christ came, he was the completion, the fulfillment of the Passover. It's beautiful. It's a powerful, wonderful plan that God has worked out. Joseph played a vital role in it through his suffering. Okay, God was good for his plan, but what about individually for Joseph? (laughs) Was it really worth it for Joseph individually? You'd think that most of us going through a time like that, we would really question whether God is good. How can God be good? My brother sold me into slavery. My father thinks I'm dead. I had a good position in Potiphar's house. Things were looking up. And bam, somebody lies and cheats and steals away what I had and my accomplishments and all that I'd done for myself and all the things I had achieved for myself. She just ripped that all away on a lie. He was unjust. He was in prison. Unjust. He had done nothing wrong but flee from evil. And he was in prison for it. God reestablishes him, pulls him back out, and makes him second in command. You'd think that, okay, yeah, he's up there. He goes, okay, I've learned my lesson. I'm looking out for number one. I'm, you know, I'm keeping a good distance from everybody. Nobody's at an arm's length. And I'm watching out for me. I got this great position. I got the nicest house in Egypt. I'm looking down on people. These, all these people did me dirty. Pot for your jerk. Go, you know, fly a kite. And your wife, I'm going to execute her tomorrow. You know, all this. He could do all of it. Second in command. What was God doing in Joseph's life? There's a famine in the land. 
Israel. Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends his brothers down to Egypt because God had put Joseph in charge through all the circumstances. They'd stored up storehouses of food and other nations were coming to, to Egypt to purchase food. Families were coming because of Joseph and what he interpreted and how not only did he interpret the dream, but he created a plan in which all of Egypt and other nations could continue to live through seven years of famine. Think about that for a second. Seven years of no eating, no crops, fields drying up, water. And Joseph, God has blessed Joseph to the point where his storage process gives enough for not only for Egypt, for other nations to be blessed because of Joseph's actions. Well, Jacob's sons come down, the sons that sold Joseph into slavery, and they come down, and what's Joseph's reaction? Hey, call the henchmen. These are all dead. No. He forgives them. How intimate Joseph had to have been with God to do that. Think about that intimacy, Joseph would God Joseph knows God is good. There's no question in Joseph's mind at all. All that God had taken Joseph through had showed and demonstrated to Joseph God is good. Period. Exclamation point. And kind of when we look at the story of Joseph, I mean we look at this in our lives, we start going, Man, I don't have much to complain about. God is going to use Nepal for his glory and for his name to be praised. I don't know how. We're in the moment. We're at this moment in the story. But God will because he's promised it will. Life isn't lost for no reason. God uses it for his glory because there's something greater than physical death that is spiritual. And we live our lives not in light of the physical moment but the eternal life to come. And the world needs to hear from believers in Jesus Christ who don't see an incident like that and say, oh boy, I guess God isn't good. But rather say, you know, God is good in light of that and his name will be praised. And you can trust in him. And let me tell you something, there's no hope outside of that. Because more more events are going to come. Scriptures tell us that the earth is going to feel birth pangs like it's never known before. So devastation on the face of this earth is only going to increase, brothers and sisters. And so we need to be ready to not back down from the conversations, to not run away, but to have our lives first and foremost demonstrating that God is good. That when God takes us through suffering and through times, he demonstrates his goodness in us and people have seen it. And second of all, we answer the question, is God good with an emphatic, yes, he is good. We need not be afraid for he is great and glorious. That's very convicting to me this morning as I look at my life and I look at times of hardship. I look at times of, <laughs> when I say hardship and then you say Joseph in the same story, you're really more like bumps in the road, right? And I know that I have not trusted in the fact that God is good. The beauty of it is that God allows me to be forgiven and to get back up and to be convicted and to once again follow God knowing he is good and trusting in him alone and not looking anywhere else. 
but only in him. Now, we, I'm not saying go quit all your jobs. I'm not saying go sell every possession you have. If God lays on your heart to do that, then guess what? He's good, and he'll take care of you. But God also calls us to serve him in the midst of everything he's given us and trust in his goodness in the midst of his giving us. It's, it's wonderful to serve a God who's good. We can count on it. Lastly, the fourth point, God is gracious. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, every time I even first service, when I say I can't help but smile. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. One of the things that we walk through in our foundations class for the church is, is our doctrinal statement. And one of the things that we talk about and spend a little bit of time on is an understanding of who we are. You see, we believe as a body of believers, and I don't know what background you come from, I don't know what denominational stuff, but this is a core faith in our church, is that we believe that we're born completely depraved sinners. We know it. And that if it wasn't for the gracious, loving act of God demonstrated through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, to rise again, and to ascend into heaven, we would be without hope. You see, because there is no proving ourselves to God, period. You can go and give all the money you want to give to the United Way, all the money you want to give to Salvation Army, all the way you want to give to all these nonprofit, wonderful nonprofit organizations. You can serve every single day in those organizations and do a lot of nice things for people. But in God's bank account, you are still in the negative. You're not even at zero. But God in his graciousness sent his son. I'd like you to read with me a story in Luke chapter 15. It's one you know, but I find a lot of comfort in revisiting stories I know. Luke chapter 15. The word of God never grows old. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to begin with the parable of the prodigal son. Hear this story. Read along if you want to or just listen. And he said, Jesus is speaking. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, forgive me, or excuse me, father, give me. The share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, now understand something. When typically does one receive an inheritance? When you're dead, right? So what is his son just treating his father as if he's dead? I have no more need for you. I have no more need for a relationship with you. Give me what is mine. So he takes what is his. Banning his relationship with his father, forsaking that family, and he leaves. <coughs> he goes away. And he says, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property and reckless living. He is seeking out the good of the world. He is living life large. He is taking control. He's enjoying himself. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was looking to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now you understand the audience here is a Jewish audience. So pigs were verboten, speak a little German, forbidden. No, no. To eat, to touch, to hang out with, let alone to be in the corral with and to feed. He had reached such a low point that he is now with the pigs in the muck, in the mud, and what they're eating. Now, now we had pigs on the farm back when I was a kid. Not, not that long. But how long did we have pigs, Dad? A couple of years? About five years? Yeah, a couple of years. I'm telling you what, the Quonset never smelled the same. No. No. On a hot day, you open up the door to the Quonset, and I don't care how many times Dad washed the concrete, that smell wasn't coming out. It stunk. And he is in the muck and the mess, and he is now the food that they are getting fed, the, the scraps, the yuck, the grossness, the slop. It's looking good. But he can't even have that. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He has sinned. He is in a very low place. He realizes that the only way for him to have any kind of life is to confess his sin, to repent and to turn from it, and to desire to just eat the scraps from his father's table, to be treated as a servant, not a family member, but as a servant. Verse 20, and he rose and he came to his father Love this but. Sometimes there's those little conjunctions can be quite important. But while his father was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son has told his father, you're dead to me. But when the father, who had every right and every privilege to stay within his home and to keep the doors locked and tell his servants to bar the gates. The father who was over the head, who was the patriarch, was the leader of that family. He runs to his son. He can't get to him fast enough. And that stench and that smell that was in that holler is now on that son. He is unclean by Jewish standards. And his father doesn't care. Because his father can restore him. 
the graciousness of the Father. The son says, and the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son who was dead is alive again. He was lost and it is found. And they began to celebrate. This was the work of the father. What did the son deserve? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was a completely gracious act of the father to say, I'm going to love on you even though you're disgusting, even though you told me to go to hell. I'm going to love on you. And I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to make you one of my family. God is the father. Don't miss that. God is so gracious, so loving. So we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. That son could do nothing to earn those gifts that was given to him. There is nothing that we can do to earn the love of our father. There's nothing we can ever do. Get it through our minds. If you're sitting here in this morning, you're like, well, well, but I need to, I come to, if you came here this morning thinking you're going to earn brownie points with God, you're missing it. When he gives us his grace, when he tells us your debt is paid through Jesus Christ, our Savior, when he has been forgiven of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the debt's paid, folks. We are not only, does it, we were in negative balance with God. We had nothing spiritually with God. But when we trusted Jesus Christ, he forgives us our sins. Guess what? We have billions of dollars in the account now, not because we worked really hard for it, not because we went out and got the right job and met the right people and had the right connections. It's all because of what God imputed to us through his son, Jesus Christ, pure, unadulterated, perfect righteousness, something that we could never attain on our own. Look at our hearts this morning. We're a bunch of sorry sinners. We're, we're selfish, we're, we're conceited, we're arrogant, we pull away from others, we live for our lives for ourselves. It doesn't take long to look in our hearts to realize that. But with what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and imputed to those who trust and believe in his name, they are no longer sons of wrath, but children of God. Amen. It's graciousness, it's grace, it's pure grace. And if we don't have any other reason to put a smile on our face and joy in our heart this morning... Then I question, brothers and sisters, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Is he your savior? Have you trusted him to take away your sins? And have you trusted him to be your savior? Folks, because for us that are children of God, this sermon is not a downer. Yes, we get convicted because we all live our lives taking back control and living in fear and, and, and trying to prove ourselves. We do this throughout our life, throughout our life story. We continue to confess, but the beauty of it is we confess before a God who never takes a day off. We confess before a God whose promises and you're in your greatest hour of need. In any hour, you can approach the throne and Jesus will be there. And he'll turn to the Father and he'll say, my child is under the blood. He's part of the family of God. So what excuse do we have 
when we've been so lavishly shown this grace to not lavishly show it to each other. To lavishly show it to our husbands, to our wives, to our children, to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Oh, how quick we are to point the finger when we run things and we don't understand something or we're having a hard time with something, we are so quick to break relationship instead of show graciousness. But the beauty of it is, God says, I'm standing ready to forgive you, to restore you, to renew you, to redeem you, to get you back on your feet and back on track. God is gracious in our time, so we don't have to prove anything with our time. We live for God in our joy and in our faith. I think sometimes we struggle even in our walk with faith with God and gracious. We think that we've done a sin in our lives or we've, we've done something in our lives that we, man, I get it. Other people have sinned, but their sin's kind of here. My sin's up here. And <laughs> God can't forgive this. Oh, yes, he can. The problem is when we have sin that we've placed on a pedestal, we're now worshiping our sin, and that's idolatry. But Jesus Christ came so that he might wash that sin completely away. It's time to stop worshiping our sin and saying, God is gracious. God is glorious. We sang today of amazing grace. Our chains are gone. They're gone. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, they're gone. We're free. So we live in light of that freedom now. We don't have to be afraid. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. And I'm hoping this morning your hearts are filling with joy as we talk. Because of who God is in every area of my life, I can be discipled. I can lay my life before God. Open book. I can just put it all out there and say, God, (laughs) tell me where I'm messing up. Tell me where I don't believe you're great, you're glorious. Tell me where I'm worshiping something else than you. And his Holy Spirit's going to say, right there. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Let me get on my knees and confess that to you, repent, and give it to you. But what's really awesome about being part of a family, being part of a family, I'm talking true family because there's a lot of different families. I'm talking about the family of God. What's really cool about the family of God is I can do that to my brothers and sisters as well. And they can say to me, Scott, I'm watching you being controlling here, being fearful here. You're trying to prove yourself here. You don't trust that God is good here. And I can say, thank you. I needed to hear that. And I can repent, and I can turn from it, and I can follow God. Let me tell you what, the evil one does not want us having relationships like that. He's going to do everything in his power to keep us from having relationships like that. But that's what the church is supposed to be, a family. And the reason I can allow this to have happen, the reason that, you know, the reason I have entered into a, a gospel community relationship, and I understand some of you have a misunderstanding about that this morning and are confused and And we're going to talk about that next couple of weeks. But I can turn to John, to Clarissa, to Kathy. I can turn to Tom, to Lisa, to Kyle, to Laura, to Jeffrey, and to Lizzie. People who have entered into my life and said, I'm going to commit spending time with you. 
and being there for you and know what's going on and pouring into you. And I can turn to them and say, is there any, is there any area in my life where I'm not believing these things? And they can be honestly speak to me because they're spending time with me. And they know me. But the really cool thing is, the reason I can open up my heart to them like that is because they love me. They're living out the great commission of loving one another. And I don't have to be afraid because they believe, as I believe, God is good, God is great, God is glorious, God is gracious. This last week, we went down and we spent time with Adam James and Adam. <laughs> you think I have energy? <laughs> oh, boy. Eight o'clock at night, and this guy is going like a firecracker. It was awesome. Sharing with us their passion and hearing testimonies about people living on mission together in gospel communities. And we talk about gospel communities as a core group of believers that, that spend time together, pour into each other's lives in order to reach the not yet believers of the world. You see, we're going to dive into it next week. And if I encourage you, if you felt that the small gospel communities were elitist in any way in starting the movement last year, we, we, I would say elitist may not be a good word, but focused and intentional would be. You can't start gospel communities in a church by standing up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning saying, we're going to start this tomorrow and everybody just sign up. We'll have mass chaos, confusion, a lot of hurt people, a lot of broken things will break down, and we had to start small and work our way through it. We talk about gospel communities next two sermons. I encourage you to be here. I think it's going to clear up some misconceptions. We got misconceptions cleared up this week. We're sitting there listening to Adam going, oh boy, I didn't, we didn't realize that, 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 cool. And like I said, for people to walk out of that meeting going, man, I feel so much freer. I think that should be an encouraging thing. So I ask you to come the next couple of weeks. We want to do this together. We want to live out the four G's. We want to disciple. We want to live on mission for God together. And it can talk about, it can be scary. We can come up with a lot of excuses. But allow us to talk to you about it before you make up your mind. Allow us to spend some time sharing with you. We're gonna, next week, we're going to talk a little, bit, a little bit about the history of the church. The birth of small groups, the difference between small groups and gospel communities. We're going to talk about, we're going to work our way through some things. And then we're going to have like a Friday night where we're going to do an open house. And those who are involved in gospel communities will cook you a great dinner. You guys didn't know you are on the hook for that, but we are. Okay. And we're going to cook you dinner and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk. We're going to watch some of the stuff that we learned this week. And we're going to just spend some time talking about it together. And you can ask us any question. We're family, right? And ask us any question about it. And we're going to work through it. But I just, what we can't do is we can't be a bunch of individual Christians trying to live for Jesus, beating ourselves to a pulp on our own out there. We're going to burn out. We're gonna, it's going to get ugly. But we need each other. And you're saying, well, I've known Christians to do more damage to each other than by themselves. True. True. I've been there, done that. But guess what? If we come at it from the perspective that we love one another, we desire to see each other grow up in the Lord, we're going to be able to have some amazing conversations together. And what's going to be really cool is we're going to be able to live more life out there and do less here. Why is that so important? Because the world needs to see God's love demonstrated out there. 
It's an exciting journey. And if you're a little bit hesitant, a little bit scared, cool. God is great. God is glorious. God is gracious. And God is great. And we trust in him. And we look to him to lead us and to guide us. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you're teaching us and how you're instructing us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord God, who are here this morning, they love you. And Lord, I just pray that we would learn to love you well. We would learn to to really believe in all of life that you are good, gracious, great, and glorious. And we would be quick to recognize any time that we have not answered that question with yes. Any time we have not been emphatic about that statement, but rather made it a question and an interrogative instead of an exclamation. Lord, draw us together. The evil one wants us separated. The evil one wants us pulling against each other. The evil one wants us thinking negatively about each other and thinking the worst of each other. Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ right now against the evil one's work in our congregation and in our midst. The evil one does not want us living in community with each other. They want us, he wants us fractured, segregated, pulling away from one another. Please, Lord God, unite our hearts. Unite what you're doing. Unite the leadership. Unite all of us to be passionate and pursuing you. Give us the other grace for each other. May we see God's greatness, goodness, gloriousness, and graciousness in how we treat one another. Thank you, Father. Teach us, Lord, each and every day. In Jesus' most holy, wonderful, perfect name, by the power of the Holy Spirit that is leading this church, we pray. Amen. Amen.